Good morning, everybody. Um, it was uh, it was an exciting show. I texted my mom right after that just to let her know I was okay, and her only response was, "I like the Midwest." <laughs> I can only assume that's because with a hur or with a tornado, at least you get an alarm. With a uh, earthquake, that is the alarm, I suppose. So I wanted to invite our children to Children's Church, and uh, your teacher will meet you back there. And as they're going, let me open us in prayer. Uh, Lord, we're grateful for the safety that we've experienced, but Lord, those who are closer to the epicenter of the earthquake have experienced a lot of loss. And so we pray for uh, everyone in Ridgecrest in that area who uh, has suffered because of the earthquake. Father, I pray that uh, the um, insurance companies would live up to their responsibilities that um, friends and family would help out. And Lord, if there's any way that this church can help there, would you make that clear to us and help us to, to meet those needs? Um, and Father, I, I, your word says the earth is, is steady and cannot be moved. But at the same time, your word also says that everything that can shake will shake. And uh, so Lord, we know that all of these things are in your hands. And so we trust you and we pray that uh, Lord, you would have, your dedicated purpose come true through uh, this earthquake, Lord. Whatever uh, you have decided that should happen through that, Lord, would you bring it about? And Lord, as we finish now the book of Acts, we pray that you be with us in this last section. Help us to see and understand what Luke is explaining to us. And Lord, I pray that you would grant us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to believe. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, it has been about a year and a half since we started Acts. We started in, uh, at the end of March of 2018. So I figured it out. That's about two and a half weeks per chapter. That's, that's not a bad pace. I think we did okay. Didn't rush too much, but we got there. Um, there's some travel in this, but I didn't do a map. Um, I hope that's okay. If you can picture Italy in your head, that's, you know, that's pretty much it. If you can't, just picture a boot pointing off to the left, and, and you got Italy. Um, so there's, that's why I didn't do a map. There's, it's pretty straightforward travel. Um, what we're looking at here at this last section of the book of Acts is really the end of the beginning. Um, we come to the end of Acts, and we kind of think that's the end, but it really is just the, the beginning of what's coming next. And so that's, that's what we're going to look at this morning is the end of the beginning. Uh, so uh, here's what's going on. There, remember last week they were on Malta. That's the island that they had washed up on. Um, Paul got bit by a snake. They thought he was a murderer. He didn't die. They thought he was a god. He goes on and meets the, the primary guy on the island, and they minister to him. Well, what happens next is uh, on the island, they found a, uh, a boat that had wintered there. Because remember, they were supposed to winter at Crete, and Paul had said, let's not leave. And the, the owners and the pilots said, yeah, we're going to leave anyway. And it didn't turn out too well. So this boat from Alexandria had sailed north and made it to Malta, and that's where they wintered. Um, and Luke throws in this little detail. It's a ship of Alexandria, but it, he mentions that it has the twin gods as the figurehead. So at the point of the boat, um, we're used to seeing like British boats with ladies you know, leaning out the front or something. This one had the twin gods, and the twin gods are Castor and Pollux. Um, they, were, um, they were the two gods that are, sailors believed were for good fortune and safe travels. Uh, what they turned into was eventually Zeus got mad and did something. Who knows? That guy's pretty fickle anyway. And he threw them up into the sky, and they are now the constellation of Gemini. So that's where Castor and Pollux wound up if you're ever looking for them. Why did he mention this? 
This has nothing to do with the story. This has got no benefit to us whatsoever. It's not like Paul said, oh, good, the two gods are at the figurehead. We're going to make it safely. He wouldn't think that way. Um, I don't know, but it feels like one of those little travel details, you know? Did you go on a cruise? Yeah, and on the cruise, they had this big, huge slide in the middle of the boat. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen, but it was a lot of fun. Did you go on a cruise? Yeah, and the figurehead was the two gods. It was kind of nice. They did a good job painting it. It just is one of those things that, once again, grounds the story in reality. Luke was there, and he's just telling us these details. Um, that's the best I can come up with. Is it's, it's one of those things. There's no benefit to adding it. There's no narrative point in adding it. It just is there. And it makes it seem much more real to us, because it is. This is Luke's story. So um, they sail from uh, Malta. They head up straight north to to, um, Syracuse, which is the big island. It's on the big island of Sicily. And so once they sail there, then they head across to uh, the boot, the very tip of the boot, to a place called um, Regium. And Regium was kind of important because there was a, a, um, a fleet there that would patrol that whole uh, strait to make sure that there were no pirates or anything going on. So it was a pretty big port. It was an important port. They sail there, and it says they kind of stayed around for a couple of days. Then they catch a north wind, or a south wind is blowing. And it must have been a good south wind because it really shot them up the coast to Puteoli, Puteoli um, really fast. They zip right up there. And uh, so that's further north. Putioli was actually a very important port for the Romans. It was the main port that fed the city of Rome. So as things were shipped to Rome, they would land there, and then they would be hauled uh, up to north to, to the city of Rome. It was a, a, a significant port. So what happens in Putioli is they, they find uh, brothers there. There's Christians there. Um, I think that's kind of neat that they run into these Christians. All the way through Acts, all we've been focused on, the camera has largely stayed on Paul and what he's done. And so we can kind of think that the only Christians in the world are the ones that Paul has converted, that Paul has planted these churches. But they get to this important port city, and by the way, there's some Christians here. In other words, I think Luke is letting us know, yeah, you know, I've really been focused on Paul, but don't forget, the word spreads. So if this is such a major port, then perhaps there were Jews who were in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost who heard the message, and this is their trip home as they're heading back to Rome, and they spread the word as they went. We don't know. And it's a beautiful thing because it leaves the door wide open. You can run into Christians, and they don't have to be just from our little tribe. They they can be from all over the place. So here's something that's kind of strange, though, is they run into these Christians, and it says that... um, they invited them to stay for seven days. Now, Paul is still traveling with Julius, that centurion. And so it's not like Paul walks up to Julius and says, hey, dude, we're staying seven days. Take a break. So there's some speculation as to why would Julius allow this? He's so close to home. He's so close to Rome. He's almost done. Well, um, especially after three months of rest on Malta, you know, it's not like they just got off this, the sea storm and, and they get there. Um, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. The road from Puteoli, from this city to Rome, um, it looks really straight. It looks like it's a, you know easy trip. Actually, it's uh, at the time it was shale, so it was a little uneven, and it's a pretty good climb. So maybe Julius is thinking, you know, a little rest before we hit that road would not be a bad idea. 
Let, let's go ahead and take seven days. The other thing is, the way the city was described by, um, I think it was Seneca, he said it was filled with sailors and stingy innkeepers. So it's a very transient city. They're used to having people travel through. When a centurion shows up and says, I need lodging, he can get lodging. But if he stays with these innkeepers, they're probably not going to give him the best accommodations because he ain't paying. He, they may come back and pay him later. That's the kind of the promise of, of hosting them. But you didn't really have much of a choice. If the soldier showed up and said, hey, I'm staying here, they were staying there. And they didn't get the best accommodations. So perhaps uh, when it says we, they invited us to stay for seven days, maybe it included at least Julius and maybe some of the important soldiers. Maybe it was the whole group that was going with, with, uh, with Paul to Rome. Um, if it was, that's not a bad deal. We can stay with some people in their homes. This will be great. So they, they agree to stay for whatever reason. They stay for seven days. Um, rest up, get ready for the trip, provisions, and then they're heading off uh, up the trip to, up the uh, road to Rome. That was, by the way, a five-day walk. And it was not a hop, skip, and a jump. It was five arduous days. So when you got to Rome, you were pretty exhausted. So maybe that's what's going on. The next thing that Luke says is a little confusing. It says, and so we came to Rome. So they came to Rome. Yeah, well, they didn't. Because he says it again in 16. So there's uh, some discussion about why would he say in, in uh, 14, we came to Rome, and then say it again in 16. So one idea is he's saying, look, we came into the administrative uh, region of Rome. And I forget why, but some of the commentators didn't like that. Um, one of the other ideas was this was the end of his travel journal. So he just copied it and set it down and come back a couple of days later and finished out the story. Um, that's great if we discount the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, as evangelicals, we say every word is inspired and exactly what God wanted to write. So I'm not going to go with that one either. So what's going on? Well, when I was in seminary, uh, we lived in the northern suburbs of Chicago. And in the northern subs, if somebody asked, hey, where are you from? If you said uh, Gray's Lake, most people would have no idea where that was. So we would say Chicago. Now, Chicago city limits are pretty big. It takes a pretty big chunk around there. And so some of the people from Chicago would get upset if you said you were from Chicago and you weren't inside the city borders. So we were from Chicago. When I went to seminary, I was in Chicago. I was in Deerfield. I was in Bannockburn. I was in Gurney. I, but I was in Chicago. If somebody asks you, if you run into somebody at airport and they say, where are you from? Do you immediately say Lancaster? The, the, you do to get a blank stare. And what's the next thing you say? It's, it's near LA. I'm from LA. I, I grew up in Detroit. Okay, I didn't grow up in Detroit. I grew up downriver from Detroit in a suburb called Taylor. But if I tell people I grew up in Taylor, Michigan, they give you the blank stare. Okay, I grew up in Detroit. It was close enough. So maybe that's what's going on here is Luke is saying, so we came here and essentially we're in Rome. We're, we're, you know, this is all part of the extended megalopolis that is Rome. And so maybe that's what's going on. And then when he gets to it in verse 16 and he says, and when we came into Rome, um, actually that's a little bit of a tweak on the translation. Uh, the word there is actually entered into. So the beginning of the journey is we came to Rome. The end of the journey is when we actually entered into it. Uh, just in case anybody ever points out one of those glaring errors in the New Testament to you, because there's a ton of them, right? This is one of them. Yeah, it's not really an error. <laughs> there's really not 
heirs in the New Testament. So, um, so here's what happens is they go, they stay with these guys, for these uh, brothers. By the way, brothers, Adelphoi in Greek, the way the New Testament uses it is not males. It was males and females. They were all referred to as brothers. Um, and that's going to be important because later when he addresses the Jews, he refers to them as brothers. Um, but that's in a different sense. So I'll get there when I get there. So Paul stays with the brothers for seven days. He stays with this group of Christians. And what does it say? It says, when Paul saw them, he thanked God and he took courage. Running into other Christians on the road like this was an encouragement to Paul. It, it is a good thing. So think about this for a second. Paul had a plot against his life. He'd been in jail for two years. He saw a king. He spoke before a king. He'd been in a storm, a raging storm, for at least, at least two weeks. He is shipwrecked. He is bitten by a snake. And now he takes courage from meeting Christians. You figure he's, if he's going to have courage, he's got courage. He needed it as he's drawn into this last little bit. So I think what's really important, what we see here, is even a, a super Christian like Paul, and he, if he said, if he's going to correct me on that someday, he's going to say, I am not a super Christian. I am the least. Um, but somebody like Paul, who's had this wonderful experience, he still needs encouragement. He still needs to find courage. He still is inspired to thank God when he sees there are other people that believe this. Don't think you're above that. Don't think you don't ever need encouragement or coming to church is supposed to be some sort of letdown. When we come together and we worship together and we share our stories and we, we serve each other and we receive service from each other, that should be an encouragement to us. That's how, what helps you get through the rest of the week is you need other believers. Paul needed other believers. And so don't neglect that. Don't, don't downplay that. Don't think it's, it's dispensable. So it says that, um, that once Paul got there, he was allowed to stay by himself. He gets to Rome. He's allowed to stay there with himself with a soldier who guarded him. Um, so it would be really, it sounds really pleasant, doesn't it? He gets there. He gets his own accommodations. Finds a nice apartment, you know, uh, third floor walk up, really pretty place, you know, that kind of thing. And he has this, this Roman centurion standing outside guarding him. Yeah, except he had chains on. The guard wasn't there to keep him safe. The guard was there to keep him under arrest. Uh, we'll see in a minute that he had chains on. So the point, though, is, is he's got some degree of freedom. He's allowed to rent his own place. They didn't throw him into the city jail. He, he rents an apartment in Rome, and he stays there, and the guard is there with him. So what do you think Paul talked about with this guard? <laughs> what did Paul always talk about? Well, there is no doubt in my mind, anyway, that Paul witnessed to these guards because... Uh, the book of Philippians, which was written around 60 AD, around this time, sometime around when Paul was, was in prison in Rome, um, he talks about some things that really show what happened here. Philippians 1, 12, and 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So throughout the entire imperial guard, they know. Why is Paul arrested? Because of Jesus. They understand who Jesus is. Later in chapter 4, when uh, Paul is sending his greetings, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. 
So do you think Paul had an impact while he was in chains? He was still preaching the gospel. It, it's pretty incredible. So even if he's under arrest, even if he's under chains, it still doesn't slow down the gospel. Paul is able to, to preach to the guy chained next to him. That uh, How would you like somebody chained to you so that you could preach the gospel to him? <laughs> it's pretty neat. It's pretty encouraging. So after three days, he calls the local leaders of the Jews. So he's been there, he's settled, he's, he's kind of tucked in, and now after three days, he writes to the Jewish synagogue, he says, I would like the leaders to come and visit me, please. Why didn't he ask the church to come and visit him? Well, who says he didn't? He was there for three days. Besides, who showed up at um, the, Forum of Appius, the Forum of Appius and Three Taverns? Probably the Jews from Rome coming down to meet him along the way. So he's, he's already met with the Roman church, most likely. Uh, but now he's going to talk to the Jews in, in the city. Um, why will he meet with the Jews? We'll find that out in verse 20. So again, in verse, uh, uh, and he refers to them, he addresses them as brothers. He says, um, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. So do you remember how Paul had, had tried to, uh, when he first went into Jerusalem, he was talking to them as like, here's my story and I'm one of you and kind of come along my story with me. He's still doing the same thing. So he's, he's talking to these Jews and he's, he's identifying with them. By the way, the word there for brothers, it's not just brothers, it's men brothers. So it's men of Israel and brothers. It's, kind of, it's a common greeting that they use. So when he addresses the church, he just refers to them as brothers. And that's men and women. But this is probably the male leadership of, of the Jews, men brothers. Um, and then he says, I've done nothing against our people or our, the customs of our fathers. What Paul is saying is Christianity, the way, this, this following of Christ is not a complete upending of Judaism. It is not the overturning of Judaism. It's not rewriting it. It is the completion of it. It is the next phase. It's the next step in line with that. It's just continuing on. I haven't violated any of this. Uh, the customs of our fathers, not necessarily the customs of the Pharisees or any of those other folks, but the customs of the fathers, what the, the nation of Israel has practiced. He says, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So I'd done nothing wrong, but I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Isn't that a nice way to put that? Do you remember what actually happened? He was in the temple bothering nobody, completing a vow, praying, and some Jews said, hey, he brought a Roman or a Greek into the temple, and they drag him out and they start beating him up. And it wasn't that the Jews delivered them, like, hi, here, please take this man. It was the Roman guard came down and rescued him because he was getting beaten. So why does he put it this way? I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to win their hearing. He's trying to endear himself to them. There's, there's no reason for him to bring out every little detail and say, oh, they, I was treated so poorly. He wants to have a hearing. And so it's accurate. They delivered them into the hands of the Romans, involuntarily, albeit, but he was delivered by them. So he says that the Romans examined him and they wished to set him at liberty. Now, didn't that happen over and over and over again? Felix, Festus, Agrippa all said, he's done nothing. So the Romans' desire was, they, they authenticated his, his statement, I have done nothing against any of this. They wanted to set me at liberty because there was nothing I did that deserved death, but because the Jews objected. Now in chapter five, 25, they came with 
Festus to Caesarea, and they made a bunch of accusations. That's, that's how that trial went down, before, right before Paul appeals to Caesar. Now, the thing I didn't, I don't think I mentioned this at the time, is Luke just kind of offhanded says, well, there was a plot against him to kill him. That's why they were asking to have him sent to Jerusalem. Luke knew of this plot. Do you think Paul knew about that plot as well? So maybe that's part of the incentive why he appealed. Is He said, um, because the Jews objected, because they kept saying, no, he's, he's, the, you Romans are saying he's innocent, he's guilty. Um, he knew of the plot, and so what he does is though um, he, he appeals to Caesar. That's the only way out of this. If I go with the Jews, they're going to get killed on the way. Um, if I stay with the Romans, they keep finding me innocent. They're going to release me. I'm going to get killed. So my only choice here is a, a appeal to Caesar. And, and he also says this one little thing. He says, though I had no charge to bring against my nation, I appealed to Caesar. In other words, what Paul is saying is, and you notice again, it's my nation. Paul didn't stop being Jewish just because he became a Christian. What he's saying is, I'm not here I'm not going to the, to the emperor in order to bring a charge and say, you know, those Judeans, they're going to be trouble. Caesar, you better go knock it off. You better, you know, settle them down. They had this Jesus guy and he caused a ruckus and now look at him. He says, I have no charge against my nation. I'm not here for political reasons. That's not what's going on. So basically he's saying, I am not going to counter sue. <laughs> I'm not going to sue because of this. And so he says, now he explains to us, for this reason, I ask to see you and speak with you. Because he's innocent and he's not seeking vengeance. And he wants him to understand this. Um, it, it, one of the commentators said, it's possible that these Jews could be rich and powerful enough that if they had decided to side against Paul, they could go with him before the emperor and make accusations. Um, I don't get any of that from the text. I mean, I guess it's possible. But Paul explains his reason is because he's innocent. And instead, he says, here's why I'm under arrest. This is what's going on. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So why did the Christians of Judea suspect him? Remember at the beginning of all this, when he showed up in, in um, Judea, in Jerusalem, and, um, and James says, you know, there's a lot of Christians really mad at you. It's because of the hope of Israel. Why was he arrested while he was in the temple? He hadn't done anything wrong. There were no Greeks with him. Why was he arrested? Because he has this hope. He is believing in the hope of Israel. And why was the council so mad at him? Remember after he was, he was arrested by the Romans, they took him down to see what was going on. They brought him before the council one more time, and the council goes into utter chaos. Why? Because of the hope of Israel. So why is this sect, is what he calls it, this way, the Christianity, why is it spoken against everywhere? Well, in this context, it's because of the hope that Paul had. That's why it is being opposed. So what's the, what's the hope? What is it that, that he's talking about? Well, in, um, when he's before the council in chapter 23, he addresses the council. He says, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection which I am on trial. When he speaks to Felix, he's explaining to Felix, he says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust. Chapter 26, when he's addressing Agrippa, 
He says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. So when he comes here, he's, he's whistling the same tune. Why am I being arrested? Why am I being opposed? Because I have a hope, the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel, according to Paul, is the resurrection. Now, here's, here's why the Jews are not crazy about that. Because remember, Pharisees like resurrection. They're, they're all into that. Why do they get mad when Paul talks about the resurrection? Well, because the way Paul is presenting it is, you don't get to the resurrection unless you go through Jesus' resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits. He is the first one raised from the dead. So you can like the idea of resurrection and not like the idea of Jesus, and you don't get there. There's only one way to the resurrection, and that's through Jesus. And so if Jesus is raised from the dead, the constant argument from the book of Acts has been, if Jesus is raised from the dead, then he must be. He, can, he is the only one who can be the Messiah, the promised son of David. He's the only one who qualifies. Why? Because David was promised that one would sit on his throne forever. forever. Jesus has died. He's risen again, never to taste death. Once more, he can reign forever. So you have to go through Jesus' resurrection, and if Jesus is raised, then he must be the Messiah. Oh, and by the way, they crucified the king. This is why the Jews get so upset about this, is they didn't like Jesus, they didn't like his claims, and now for Paul to come and say, he's risen and I've seen him, therefore he's the Messiah, therefore that's the promise of Israel, that's why they get so upset about this. One little side note, um, what are the Jews thinking when they hear hope of Israel? Well, Jeremiah twice in 14.8 and 17.13 calls God himself the hope of Israel. He addresses God as the hope of Israel. So if Paul is saying it's because of the hope of Israel, the Jews might be hearing, well, it's because of God that he's on trial. And we, we like God. He's, we're on his side, so let's hear him. So their response is, we desire to hear from you what your views are. All we know about the way is that it's opposed everywhere. So if they've heard nothing but negative things about Paul's position, if they've heard nothing but negative things about the way, about Christianity, why would they stop to listen to him? Wouldn't they just say, yeah, we heard you guys are trouble. You know, if we, if we get up and we mention something about a cult that's going around knocking on doors, don't you feel like, yeah, we don't want anything to do with that. So why are the Jews at least willing to listen? Um, why would they receive him and hear him? Well, one commentator, I think he sums it up pretty well. He says, however, in light of their recent experiences, we should judge the Jewish leader's response to Paul's words. Having been expelled from Rome in 49 or 50 because of riots about Christianity in their community, and having only recently returned to the city after Claudius' death in 54, they were simply not prepared in 61 to become involved with Paul's case one way or the other. So they don't want to oppose Paul, he's a Jew, and they don't want to get into a big fight over it because last time that happened, they got chased out of the city. The Jews had been evicted. As a matter of fact, that's why we run into uh, Aquila and Priscilla is because they got kicked out of Rome at that time. So this is the idea that the Jews are willing to hear what Paul has to say. We'll listen to you. So now what happens? He has an audience. He has a chance. He has an opportunity to talk to them again. Um, this is what Paul lives for, right? So it says in, in verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him. So it was the Jews who picked a date. They checked their, day cal their, their calendars and said, yeah, we can come. Because honestly, Paul's not going anywhere. 
you know, he, he had a pretty open calendar. It wasn't like he, he was going to be off, you know, traveling or anything. He was chained to a, a Roman guard in his home. So the Jews picked the date. And it says that they came to him in greater numbers. So there's something about Paul. There's something that they want to hear from him um, that draws even bigger numbers. Uh, so maybe it's they are familiar with Paul's history before he became a Christian. You know, this guy studied under Gamaliel. He was an up-and-rising star within the Pharisees. This was a big-league, heavy-heating theologian. We should listen to Paul. What's he got to say? They're isolated enough. They're far enough away from Jerusalem that maybe they don't have the complete picture. So they want to hear him. So a large number comes to him. Um, and here's what he did. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He expounded. To expound is to take something and explain it more fully, to open it up more. So he picks up the law of Moses and the prophets, and he says, let me explain to you about Jesus of Nazareth. Let me tell you what's going on here. Let me tell you about the hope that we have. Let me tell you about the resurrection that's promised. So he expounds. He takes their own scriptures and opens them up to them so that they can hear and they can understand better. And he talks about two things. He talks about the kingdom of God, he reasons with them about Jesus, and we've kind of touched on Jesus. We know he must be the Messiah, and he talks about the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God, you know, the hope of Israel, what was that? That was the resurrection, right? Has the resurrection come yet? If you say yes, that's a, that's a heresy, and we need to talk. The resurrection hasn't come yet. Has the resurrection come in some way yet? Yeah, absolutely. Jesus' resurrection, he is the first fruits. So his resurrection is a promise. It's a hope that we have looking toward the future. And then there'll come a time when Jesus returns and he raises his people with him. And he'll reign on the earth for a thousand years with his people. And then at the end, there's the general resurrection. So that's one of the things Paul said, the resurrection of the just and the unjust. There's a coming resurrection. So we got a foretaste of it now. There's a glimpse of it in the future, and then there's the fullness at the end of time. Well, the kingdom of God is kind of like that as well. It kind of flows in a similar kind of way. Um, is the kingdom of God present now? In, in a way, yes, it is. Here's what, Luke's, or here's, what Paul's, or, here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is now. But is it now in its fullness? Not yet. We're still waiting for more. Uh, by the way, there was an amendment to the amendment to the motion to change the statement of faith for the Evangelical Free Church of America. Um, and when they first announced it, they said, we've got to vote on the amendment to the amendment. I'm going, what? What happened was uh, somebody made a motion. You know, we took out the word premillennial and put in the word glorious. Somebody wanted to add to the end of that sentence to establish his, uh, his kingdom. And so had that motion passed, we wouldn't be able to vote on the, the change to the statement of faith for another two years. But the question is, and this is what one of the, the heavy-hitting theologians got up and, and his rebuttal to it was is, is there no sense in which the kingdom of God is now? And the man who made the motion kind of, I think he at the end was like, okay, yeah, I, I get it. 
I, I, what I was trying to do was, so he was trying to make a theological statement, but I thought it was a good question. Is there any sense in which the kingdom of God is now? Yes, it is. It's inside you. It's with us now, but it hasn't come in its fullness yet. So the kingdom actually comes with the king, doesn't it? And the king has come, and he's, he's returned. So, for example, in Luke 20, when there's a question about Jesus exercising demons, Jesus' response is, if by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, Satan's kingdom is broken. If, if he's casting demons out by the power of God, that's another sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom. It is coming in power now. But it comes because the king has come, because Jesus is the where they're doing it. He doesn't point to his apostles, who he sent out and said, cast out demons. He points to himself. If I do this, then the kingdom of come. Is they do it, they do it under my authority. But if I do it, it's because the kingdom has come. So the kingdom has come in Jesus' first coming, and it's beginning to work its way through the world now, but we're actually looking forward to the fullness of it at the end, when Jesus comes and he reigns on the earth. But even that's not quite the fullness of it, is it? Sometimes we think of the, the millennial reign of Christ, when Jesus is standing on the earth, there is the kingdom of God come. But it's almost, it's still not quite there yet. Uh, the reason I say that is because of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 24, Paul explains it. He says, then comes the end when he, that is Jesus, delivers the kingdom to the God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. So did you hear the, 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 the difference there? There's a time coming when he will defeat all his foes. Until that time, he's reigning now. So you get this dual picture, future and now. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Has death been destroyed yet? Tragically not. It has a pretty free reign across the globe right now. But there's coming a time when the last enemy is put away. So Jesus is reigning now as his enemies are being put under his footstool. The last enemy to be done away with is death. And then when that happens, when the last enemy is destroyed, Paul goes on, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are in subjection, it's plain that he's accepted, uh, he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. A little confusing phrase. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection, and then God may be all in all. So what he's saying is, once that last enemy is defeated, once death is done, then the kingdom is turned over to the Father. So we have a taste of the kingdom now. We look forward to a more perfect manifestation of the kingdom when Jesus comes and reigns, but the fullness of the kingdom won't come until all the enemies are done away with. And that's the new heavens and the new earth. So it's a similar kind of thing. It's that hope of the resurrection. Yeah, we get a taste of it now. We see Jesus is raised from the dead. Uh, there's a way in which we're spiritually resurrected by regeneration, we're made new, and we're, we're hoping in that. But that's only halfway because my flesh hasn't changed a lick. It's still the same stuff. But then there's a resurrection coming, and that'll be more glorious. Same thing with the kingdom of God. It is now, and it is coming. It'll be here. So the Jews, the Jews largely misunderstood the, the concept of the kingdom. They, they saw it as only the earthly reign of their Messiah 
in Jerusalem over only the land of Israel. That was what they were hoping in, was only in the land of Israel and only an earthly reign. So you can hear this echoed in our apostles. They didn't get it yet. Remember the beginning of the book of Acts? Remember the very beginning when Jesus is about to ascend? He, he takes him up on the mountain. And so it says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time when we get back to the Davidic kingdom, to Solomon? Is, is now when you're going to ascend to the throne and rule over Israel? And Jesus' answer is a bit enigmatic. It's a little confusing. He says to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You won't know when it comes. I've been, what have I been telling you? Watch for the kingdom to come. Be like the virgins who are at the gate waiting for the bridegroom to show up with their wicks lit and, and, and standing by and wide awake. Be like that. So he says, it's not for you to know when the Father has fixed this for, by his own authority, but in the intermediate, in the now, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria. Great! Jerusalem will kick out the Romans, will reestablish that. Judea will take that whole land back as ours. Samaria, we will get rid of those Samaritans and we will have the land like it was under, um, under Solomon. Cool, this is great. This is exactly what we were asking for. But... That's not the fullness of it, is it? One more little phrase we forgot. Maybe they were yelling too loud and missed this. And to the ends of the earth. The kingdom is not enough if it is only in Israel. The kingdom is not sufficient. It doesn't meet all the requirements of the kingdom until it takes over the whole globe. To the ends of the earth. So the kingdom has come and we're tasting it, but we're looking forward to that global reign of the kingdom of God. It goes to the ends of the earth. And that's what Acts has been about, isn't it? Didn't it start in Jerusalem? The day of Pentecost, this amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit and people here. And then after that, they get scattered around Judea and they begin to share the gospel in Judea. Then Philip has the audacity to go to Samaria. And then we see Paul take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's exactly what's been going on. That's what's been happening. This is the spread of the kingdom of God as it continues to spread out. So all of this, from Paul's perspective, is found in Moses and the prophets. He picked up his Old Testament and he explained to them, this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like. This is what it looks like. So the response is, there was a great revival, and everybody said amen, and they had a wonderful prayer meeting, and just started filling bathtubs with water and dunking folks, right? And unfortunately not. What it says is, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. So why is it, come on friends, I mean, we're all sitting here, we're going, I get it. I see it. I see the kingdom of God. I see the glory of the resurrection. I get a foretaste of the promise and, and the renewal of my heart in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and regeneration. Why can't everybody see that? Haven't you ever felt like that? How can you miss this? This is wonderful because part of what's going on is rational. It is a discussion of historical facts. It is presentation of A, B, and C. If this, then this. Part of it is rational. But another part is spiritual. 
right? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The promise of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who, the one who opens their eyes. If he doesn't come, it doesn't happen. So some of them could hear and some of them could not. Some of them believed and some of them didn't. They went away disputing with each other. They couldn't even come to an agreement on it. It's a spiritual process. That's why when you witness, it's extremely important that you pray. That's why it's really super important. A friend of mine I was talking with recently was, was concerned about a relative of theirs who lives on the other side of the country. They don't know the Lord. And they, they think that they should move there and, and be with them to, to minister the Lord. And I wanted to remind them, don't forget, your most powerful weapon is prayer. And that's not restricted by geography. You can pray for them, and the Lord can bring somebody else into their life in a way that you would never anticipate. Big portion of all our ministry is spiritual. It has to be. And so when they go away disputing after Paul said one more thing, what was the one more thing he said? He says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the prophet Isaiah. I love that statement. Did the prophet Isaiah write that book? Did he sit down and pen these words? Did he say these words? Yes, he did. How did he do it? The Holy Spirit spoke through him. The Holy Spirit inspired him to say these words. That is our beautiful doctrine of inspiration. Isaiah speaks and the Holy Spirit speaks. Those are his words. So he, he quotes, uh, or he says, uh, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to our fathers? No, now he says your fathers. So earlier, he had been identifying wholly with the Jews, our nation, our people, our fathers. But now he says what Isaiah had to say, he had to say to your fathers. And, and it seems like he is putting a little distance there because... Before the coming of Christ, the covenant family, the covenant community included those who trusted God and those who did not. To get kicked out of the covenant community, there was a, some, uh, some fairly clear things that you had to do to be kicked out. It was a mixed company. So when the Holy Spirit came and said, you, your eyes are not going to see, your ears are not going to hear, your heart's not going to believe, there were those in Israel who did hear and see and believe. And there was were in Israel who did not. So Isaiah's message is not to the believers in Israel, it was to the non-believers, your fathers, you people who won't believe. So he's, he's setting up a distinction here, a difference, your fathers. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10 from the Septuagint. But it's not quite a quote, even from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation done in around 300 BC or so, uh, somewhere in that time period of the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, he's using the Septuagint, but even there he's making some changes to it. So did he just not know his Bible particularly well? He, he couldn't remember the verse. You know, the, he, he had those verse memorization cards a couple of months ago and it slipped. I don't think that's what's going on. I think what Paul is doing is not quoting Isaiah at them. He's interpreting Isaiah to them. What had he been doing? Expounding from the law and the prophets. So here he is expounding from, from the uh, prophet Isaiah your eye, you have eyeballs. You have holes drilled into the side of your head called ears, and you have a heart. It is not beyond physical capability for you to believe and to understand these things. You can, you can hear them. I know the sound waves are bouncing into your ears, and you're, under, you're hearing it. Your, your eyes, you see what's been going on, but your heart will not believe. 
So he quotes Isaiah to him and says, that's what's going on is, is you're, you, there's a partial hardening of Israel. They won't hear and they won't believe. And so in the end, he turns and he says, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Now, does that mean all Jews are cut off? There can never be another Jewish convert after that point at all because the gospel has gone to... No, that's clearly not what it believes or what it means. That we continue to witness to, to Jews and to Gentiles alike. And, and there continues to be conversions amongst them. What he's saying is these folks have hardened their hearts. And so I'm not going to continue to waste my time with you. I'll preach to the Gentiles and the Gentiles will believe. And really, isn't that what's going on? The Gentiles are turning in great numbers to hear this, this gospel message. Back that up. Why is he under arrest? Because of the hope that he has, of the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel was that promise made to the fathers. That promise made to the fathers always included the nations. Abraham, in your seed, the nations will be blessed. David, one on your throne will rule over the nations. Psalm 2, Lord, give me the nations. That is the cry of my heart, and they are yours. And you'll rule over them with an iron rod. So the promise has always been, throughout history, the promise has been that the Gentiles would come in. Now, kind of like where we're at now, right? The hope of the resurrection, we've got a taste of it, but not the fullness of it. The hope of the kingdom, we have a taste of it, but not the fullness of it yet. Israel had that same thing. Rahab, the harlot in Jericho, she should have been killed with the rest of them. God had said, don't spare anybody. But there's this hope. She saw what was going to happen. She said, all the kings in the area are terrified. And I'm scared too, but I want to be on that God's side. So Rahab's welcomed in. There's countless places where Gentiles are brought in in the Old Covenant. Now it comes in in fullness in the New. We get more of a taste of it. So if you were paying attention, um, or if you looked in your Bible, you might want to read verse 29 real quick. Yeah, it ain't there. <laughs> so... So what's going on? Why did, did they, uh, is that a printing error? No, the King James Version, which is where we got our versification, uh, included verse 29, which in the King James says, and when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. Um, doesn't add a thing to the story, does it? Doesn't really help. Um, it actually comes from what's called the Western Manuscript, which was assembled around 500 AD, the older manuscripts that we have didn't have that verse in there, and the Western tended to include a lot of extra details. So that's why verse 29 is not there. Probably doesn't belong there. It's probably not part of the original story. So the conclusion, the, the end of the beginning. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. The word there for at his own expense is the word for rent. So what's going on is he's, he's renting a place at his own expense. He's paying for it. So either he had the cash, or perhaps if you look at the rest of the New Testament, people are sending money to help him to meet his needs. Um, maybe the, the church is sending money to help him pay for these things. But it's his expense. He didn't get a court-appointed uh, home near the courthouse or something. Um, so he stays there two whole years, and he welcomed all who came to him, Jew and Gentile alike. If they came to him, he welcomed them in, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God and was teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness, and without hindrance, even though he's sitting there with a Roman guard chained to him, chains on his hands, 
he preaches the gospel as freely as possible. He just continues to preach while he's waiting to meet Nero. And then what? It just ends. It's like, did he get to Nero? Did he get executed? What happened? And Luke leaves the end of the book just wide open like this. Uh, so we don't know for sure what happened. Um, there, are, there are some things that people reason about why did it end this way, but, but we don't have a really solid answer. What we get is just the end of the story. He sat for two years. Um, we can, though, infer some things. Now, I want you to be careful when you do inferences in Scripture. Uh, an inference should be two things. It should be good and it should be necessary. In other words, to make sense out of the text, I have to make this inference even though it doesn't clearly say it. Um, there are some times when inferences are bad and therefore not necessary, and there are some inferences that are good but aren't necessary. So to make an inference, you want to make sure it's a good inference and it's necessary. So that's what I want to do real quick is what can we infer about what happened next? What did Jesus himself stand next to Paul and tell him? As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you will testify in Rome. That met the requirements. He testified in Rome. He was in Rome when he testified. But the angel said, you'll have to stand before Caesar when he was on the boat. So I think from that, because we know God's character, I think we can infer he met with Nero. He, he met him. He had to have met him. He had to have gone before him. In the book of Philemon, Paul speaks about his release and the hope to visit Philemon. So it seems most likely that Paul met with Nero and was released, and he went and he visited, or at least he hoped to, visit Philemon, probably did. In Romans 15, verses 22 through 29, Paul expresses his desire to preach the gospel in Spain. So he is wanting to continue on. Um, and Clement, who wrote around 95, Clement was, is mentioned in the New Testament, um, and we have uh, First and Second Clement, he wrote to the Corinthian church. What he says is that Paul preached, quote, in the farthest limits of the West. So Clement, 95 AD, is saying that Paul preached at the farthest limits of the West. It could be Gaul, which we would call um, France now, or England, Britannia, but it almost always exclusively referred to Spain. So it seems like Paul left Rome and made it to Spain. And then apparently he also traveled to Crete because in, in uh, the book of Titus, Titus 1.5, he says that he went to Crete and he left Titus there. Now, he had been to Crete before, but it was a quick trip through the island, did some evangelizing and head out. We don't know that Titus was with him at the time. So it seems like maybe he was sailing and he came back and he said, Titus, why don't you stay here and help these churches that we planted a while ago? and help them grow. So we get to see some of what Paul's been up to afterwards. There's more in the epistles. There was a long list, and I just didn't want to go through all of it. Um, but First and Second Timothy, First and Second Thessalonians kind of talks more about some of what Paul was up to afterwards. So it appears that Paul continues to minister. So this really bugs me. This really bugs me. Why did Luke end the way he did? If there was more to the story, why didn't he keep writing? Well, some people say, well, this is just how the Greeks wrote. They left you with a cliffhanger, and then you could use your imagination to fill in the story, or you, it would engage you more as you're trying to wrestle through it. Yeah, maybe, except it's not only a Greek writing this, is it? It's also the Holy Spirit, and so it's inspired, and so I'm not really satisfied with that. Uh, one theory that cracks me up is he ran out of papyrus, <laughs> got to the end of the scroll and went, okay, period, done, here you go. <laughs> Had a bunch more to say, but I ain't got no more paper. I, I don't find that compelling, uh, necessarily. Uh, Another one is he intended to write a second volume. 
I kind of don't like that one so much either because really Acts is a second volume, isn't it? It's the second half of Luke. And we don't have any indication that he ever even started writing a second volume. So maybe that's not it. Um, my take, what I'm thinking is he stopped writing because he caught up to himself. Um, it's most likely he is sitting with Paul in Rome, 62 AD, and he goes, and you know, what happened today? Well, it's been two years and we've been preaching, period. Okay, let's get this letter out. That seems more likely. Um, it does include this idea of Paul being that witness and being there and, and, and gives us some concrete testimony, some historical reality to this story as the guy writing it puts period when he says, okay, Paul, what's next? You know, I mean, that, that's just the way it's done. Um, but that's just Paul, or that's just Luke writing. What about the Holy Spirit? Why would the Holy Spirit write you this letter this way? What does the Holy Spirit want to accomplish in you by ending the, the book of Acts in the way he did? I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to involve us in the story. He's saying, this is everything that's been happening. Look at all of these wonderful things that have been going on. And now he puts it in your hands. Now you take over. The church now goes where Paul has started. He laid the groundwork. And now we pick it up and we go. So there's a, I, there's a reason they named a ministry for church planting Acts 29. It's not because they didn't know their Bible. It's they, they're like the, the rest of the story. I like that. I kind of resonate with that idea is we're living Acts 29. That's the next chapter. That's what we're doing. So I, I think that's why the Holy Spirit leaves it wide open like that is it's to engage us. It's to draw us into that story and say, now, where do I stand here? Where do I fit into this? I've seen what Paul's been doing. How do I fit? What do I do with this? And so that's why our Holy Spirit gives us that at the end of that book that way. I've said that the book of Acts is about disciples making disciples. Disciples, there's your lesson. Thus endeth the lesson. We have tremendous hope. He, Paul is in chains and it didn't stop the, the um, proclamation of the gospel. He's sitting next to a Roman guard and all that serves to do is get the gospel through the whole Roman praetorium into Caesar's very household. The beginning of the book of Acts was, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that we're not done with the ends of the earth yet. It's a globe, it doesn't have an end. <laughs> I cheated. <laughs> we're gonna just keep, we're gonna continue to carry the gospel forward. So that, that is the book of Acts. This is our, our discipleship manual now is Peter made disciples, Paul made disciples, Paul's disciples made disciples. Can we make disciples? It's a spiritual process, bathed in prayer, we have some really clear principles, and let's go out and carry on that work. That's the book of Acts. What comes next? We're going to back up. When we did the, uh, the book of Genesis, the way I presented it, I said, is it was setting up for why the Jews were in Egypt. It's told the story of what got the Jews to Egypt. I feel bad that we left them in Egypt. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up the book of Acts and we'll take them back out of Egypt and we'll see what happens next. So uh, did I say Acts? Yeah, I'm going to go back and preach Acts again. <laughs> Exodus. When we go back to Exodus, uh, we'll, we'll pick up the rest of that story. Um, as I've said a couple of times, I promise I'm not going to preach uh, the construction of the tabernacle three times because it's in there three times. But we'll, we'll go through the narrative portions. We'll talk about the story. And, and get from that what we can. So that's what we'll do. And I, you know what I, I kind of liked about Genesis was breaking it into four pieces 
and then taking a break and going and studying something else and then coming back. So I'll keep my eyes open and see if Exodus lends itself to something like that, where maybe to the, the uh, Exodus, to the Passover, and then go study something else. We'll see. We'll see what the Lord has in store. It's his church. It's his word. You're his people. I just get to stand up here and be the dummy, you know, mouthing the words. So whatever he wants to do, we'll, we'll go there. Sound like a plan? Yeah. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, uh, Help us to be an Acts 29 church, not named after the ministry, but Lord, from the fact that the book ends wide open for us. Lord, help us to walk in the trajectory, the pattern, the place that that, uh, you laid down in the book of Acts. Lord, I pray that we would be making disciples, that we would be leading people to trust in you. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you open eyes? Would you clean wax out of ears? But most importantly, Lord, would you capture hearts? Grab them, grab hold of them, make them new, fill them with faith so that we can help people walk with you more. And Lord, just because that's what we're called to do doesn't mean we don't need it. So Lord, would you cause us to trust you and to walk with you more readily every day? Help us to grow in the discipleship that we have. And Lord, we pray for the success of your gospel around the globe. In Christ's name, amen.